let's move on to the mind module and the very first paragraph or two really says what the mind module is all about and it's so important because over the last 20 years or so the intellect has been so trashed and so put down and so belittled in spiritual circles that the absolute crucial nature of mind and intellect has just been almost completely forgotten and we've reduced spirituality to pre-mental pre-rational feelings instead of feelings that are both mental and transmental as well and that it's just been a, a horrid consequence of this misunderstanding of the important role that mind and intellect plays and certainly play in spirituality so what we remind people of right at the beginning here is the mind module of ILP has two primary dimensions one the practice of increasing your capacity to take more nuanced complex and accurate perspectives and two the practice of expanding the mental framework you use to organize those perspectives and that in a sense is saying it all I'll read one more paragraph right after that uh, the simple intention to see more perspectives is a fundamental practice of the mind module try to notice additional perspectives when possible to continually wake up into new and larger perspectives to take perspectives on your own perspective taking as a practitioner hold the awareness that every perspective is both true and partial including your own Let's try to be less defensive of your point of view and more curious about and open to new ways of seeing things. The practice of opening to new perspectives could take a million forms, from reading books to talking to new people to traveling to experiencing art. The mind is truly infinite, and so are the perspectives available to you. That's what makes the Aqua Framework an indispensable tool. As a way of organizing the many perspectives we can take, it actually creates room for more and deeper perspectives. Just as cleaning out a closet helps you fit more into it and helps you find what you're looking for when you need it, using Aqua helps create a place for everything in your life. And uh, that indeed is what the... Um, Aqual approach does and, and therefore it is making room for everything and understanding everything how they fit how everything fits together and making a place for everything and so um, increasing perspectives though is the fundamental nature of cognition and it's a, certainly the fundamental thing that we emphasize about the mind module you know there's another really great thing about the Aqual maps well framed in terms of this uh, formulation that you just articulated, which is not only does aqua theory give us a way to organize our perspectives and make sense of that chaos, it also implicitly is humble because it really acknowledges a mysterium tremendum beyond all perspectives. Uh, right. Aqua theory is grounded in an awakened perspective that appreciates the you know, capital R reality that is beyond all perspectives. And it organizes the perspectives with, you know, tremendous rigor and detail. But the fact that it contextualizes them in that fashion makes it an awakened map rather than merely a map. Right. You know, in some sense, you've always acknowledged that Aqual 
is a, a map of samsara, and that's one way of saying this. Uh, that awareness of what's beyond the samsara informs the uh, intelligence with which the map is organized, and I right. think that's one of the most important strengths of aqua theory. Right. And, you know, sometimes when I say that aqua is a map of samsara, um, it's sort of half kidding, but it's half very, very serious. Because we have the world in terms of the world that manifests and shows up and is gross, subtle, or causal in its sameness. And then there's the unmanifest, the infinite emptiness that is the ground and source and suchness of everything that is arising. And it's not really separate from the manifest world so much as it is the dustness or the isness of everything that's manifest. But it's not in itself a particular single manifest thing. It's the totality of manifest things, and whether they manifest or not. But that emptiness is the nirvanic component to the integral approach. And I sometimes say it's easier to you know, escape a prison if you have a good map of the prison floor. And that's what the aqua map is as well. It's another way of understanding that is a good picture of the manifest domain. Then that means it's what we need to integrate with emptiness in order to come up with a non-dual orientation. When the Heart Sutra says that which is emptiness is not other than form, and that which is form is not other than emptiness, then they mean that which is samsara is not other than nirvana, and that which is nirvana is not other than samsara. And so what we want to do in order to have a truly unified, non-dual approach, where we're including both, as it were, all of samsara and all of nirvana, is to continue to update our maps of samsara. Because samsara, the manifest world, continues to evolve and is, in fact, the dynamic aspect of spirit. Spirit in action is evolution. As Darwin's colleague, co-discoverer of natural selection, maintained, um, Professor Wallace always maintained that evolution was, was simply God's action in the manifest world. It's how the spirit basically becomes manifest. And so we have the samsaric realm, and we have it unfolding, we have it evolving, and therefore new pictures of it become necessary sort of each generation. And there are just so many things that spirit discovers about itself with each generation that there are more and more things that have to go into a map it's going to include both all of samsara and all of nirvana. And being one with all of samsara, which is a keynote of a non-dual realization, means that there's more about samsara that we need to understand. There are more things we need to look for. There are more dimensions. There are more quadrants, levels, lines, states, types that we have to take into account in order to be aware of just what the hell it is we're supposed to be coming one with. And that's one of the reasons that the great integral philosophers, going back to Plato and Plotinus and all the way up through the, some of the medieval 
philosophers and up to Eckhart and uh, up to the German idealists and, and so on, is that the integral approach has to be redone each generation. It has to be refashioned and rethought and more discoveries included. And all of that is the role of the mind. All of that is is absolutely essential and is what the intellect does. And the intellect um, in Sanskrit is B-U-D-D-H-I. And Buddha is B-U-D-D-H-A. Um, Buddha is one who has awakened the buddhi, the intellect. And not one who's awakened feelings, one who's awakened the intellect. And so, of course, we include feelings and feeling awareness. And it's simple, immediate prehension and grasp of what's arising moment to moment. But that also certainly includes the intellect. And so having a, um, a framework, a map, an integral orientation to the rest of the elements that we're working with, including non-conceptual awareness, I mean, where does that fit in relation to everything else? Well, the integral map gives us hints and shows us where that fits. And so we have a place for everything, literally a place for everything in, in, in the universe. Which frees it by, yes. by, in a sense, limiting it. Exactly. We have a place for non-conceptual awareness. We're not just disappearing into non-conceptual awareness and losing all sense of context permanently. We're giving ourselves a kind of permission to get the great blessings that come only from non-conceptual awareness and right. validated and offered a place for that and also given a context so that as duality reasserts itself, which it always does, the motion back into relative awareness that is a part of the truly non-dual lived uh, experience right. has a way to be informed by non-conceptual awareness and still to re-enter conceptual awareness, perhaps transformed from that time in non-conceptual awareness, but not just disoriented and less right. able to deal with uh, right. relative experience. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's so important about how conceptual awareness and non-conceptual awareness working together, it's so important to have that. And so... Um, you know, we commonly hear people say that, well, that, you know, the aqua framework is just a map, and you don't want to confuse the map with the territory. And we go, well, yeah, I mean, we've only realized that for well, the past 20 years, but since you bring it up again, we don't want to confuse the map with the territory. But at the same time, we don't want to have a completely fucked up map. If you're going to fly over the Rocky Mountains, you want to have a map, and you're not going to confuse the map of the Rocky Mountains, but you don't want to have an inaccurate map because you're going to fly into the Rocky Mountains if that's the case. So we're perfectly aware that this is a map, and that's why I make so many jokes about, you know, and it's a map of the prison. But having an accurate map of the manifest world is the fundamental way that we understand the relative truths in the manifest world. And all of the traditions has something that's referred to generally as the two truths doctrine. And the, the truths are relative truth and absolute truth. 
and relative truth is truth that science would come up with or literature or history and it's things like is it true that water has two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom and the answer is yes that is true that is a relatively true statement is it ultimately true no ultimately what water is is emptiness or brahman or suchness that's ultimate truth but both of these need to be understood and so the manifest part the relative part of the aqua map is having these various elements and components quadrants and levels and lines and states and types and we try to present as much relative truth as possible because that's where our relative being is going to orient that's where our finite self finds itself and so we want as much relative truth as possible and then absolute truth which integral theory also fully includes is emptiness is radically unqualifiable suchness and that cannot be conceptualized in any way including that way and so that is the ground and source and suchness that's the paper on which the aqua framework is drawn and that's the very nature of the cosmos prior to manifestation prior to the big bang which your original face before your parents were born and discovering that infinite self that ultimate true nature is the fundamental and absolute goal and drive of all of reality itself and then as that's happening there is all of the relative truths that occur alongside of absolute truth and these relative truths are actually the manifestations of absolute truth and so we are very serious about including both of them and very serious about not mixing them up and that's another very important issue way too often we hear buddhist teachers say that um anatta no self is true and is a true doctrine and is something that we take as part of our buddhist training but it's not true on the relative or absolute level according to nagarjuna uh the great founder of mahayana buddhism according to nagarjuna in the relative plane the self is as true as objects the subject is as true as objects it has a relative reality in the absolute realm it's not true that the absolute reality is anatta because according to nagarjuna absolute reality is neither self nor not self nor both nor neither and so saying that absolute truth is anatta is wrong saying that relative truth is anatta is wrong and so it's not it's by not giving enough attention to the intellectual components of meditative awareness that we get into those kinds of problems and start advancing theories that are just frankly relatively wrong and ultimately wrong absolutely wrong and that's not something we want to get caught up in 
And so integral theory takes very seriously, you know, relative truth and absolute truth. And we're trying to advance as much of uh, both of those as we can, because waking up to relative truth still frees us from relative falsehood and relative oppression and relative power and relative hypocrisy. Whereas waking up to ultimate truth frees us from the dream altogether, frees us from illusion altogether, and awakens us to our ever-present and always true nature. Both of those are extremely important and taken very importantly uh, in integral approaches. Beautiful. And, and it really, for me, immediately brings up the nature of what it is to use the map skillfully. And right. uh, a skillful user of this map will arrive in one moment where uh, there's seepage in the basement and the way you need to understand water is quite specific and relative and uh, urgent and simply understanding its suchness is um, hopefully the context with which you'll engage your relative knowledge of right. water, but it's <laughs> right. not a substitute for that exactly. relative cognition. Or uh, another context in which a feeling apprehension of water that is artistic and poetic in nature is appropriate. Right. Uh, skilled integral tool user is characterized by uh, tremendous uh, flexibility. There's a dance of perspectives right. and in the, in the relative domain, the absolute right. domain, you're always growing into deeper and fuller and more consistent uh, grounding in the in the absolute. And that's a very profound and, and matter that should never be underemphasized. Right. But people are simultaneously living in relative reality in which there's a constant dance of different perspectives and in one moment a particular lens is necessary and appropriate and in another a different one and right. the ability to move and flex and flow and arrive appropriately in each context with the uh, relative awareness that's appropriate is one of the ways of expressing maturity in this module, the mind module. Right. The mind yep. module is not really only the static mastery of a static map. It's the flexible use of an adequate map. And uh, that has to do with both the profundity with which you can know the absolute and the, what, what can we say, the grace and, and vigor and... Uh, vividness and excellence with which you can inhabit relative perspectives appropriately in right. the play of experience. Right, right. Yeah, that's a very, very uh, important point. Um, one of the uh, elements of the aqual or integral framework, uh, we've talked about uh, quadrants and as first, second, third person. One of the important elements is the developmental lines and Many of them were made famous by Howard Gardner's term, multiple intelligences. Uh, for a long time, it was thought that the only major intelligence that human beings had was a cognitive intelligence, and this was measured on IQ tests. But um, so much experience and empirical evidence itself has shown that there's, there's really at least um, a half dozen, more likely a dozen, possibly two dozen, 
uh, types of intelligence. And these uh, grow and develop. They show development, as most things in nature do. And ones that we list, although, again, it's, it's, it's that there can be many more, is uh, cognition, needs, self-identity, um, values, emotions, aesthetics, morals, interpersonal uh, relationing, uh, kinesthetics, and spirituality. And each of those lines goes through a series of levels of consciousness. So each of those lines of development goes through various levels. And the levels themselves, can, you can give generic names to those. Usually we, we just use colors from a rainbow um, because any one term limits the actual meaning of a particular level. But um, there are some generic terms that, that are used for these levels. Gene Gepser, who was one of the first to spot a structure of being, a structure of consciousness, called them, in terms of the order that they develop and emerge, archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, uh, integral, and then we add super integral and, and even higher. And so each of those dozen developmental lines go through those seven or eight developmental levels. And the essential point of growth and development is that each one of those levels represents a new and higher and wider perspective. So the archaic structure and magic have a first-person perspective. They're egocentric or narcissistic. The mythic structure is ethnocentric. It can take a second-person perspective. The rational structure is uh, world-centric. It can take a third-person perspective. And that's why we start to get modern values and scientific values uh, with a rational structure. The pluralistic structure is postmodern. It has a fourth-person perspective, which relativizes what scientific truths deliver. And that's because there's a fourth-person perspective now on hand to always look at the results of the third-person perspective and say, oh, wait a minute, I'm aware of that, and I'm aware that there are different cultures, and therefore I am aware of plurality of truths and not just a single monolithic truth. Um, all of those were called first tier by Claire Graves because all of those feel that their truths are the only really real truths in existence and that their values are the only true values in existence. And then the next stage, moving from pluralistic into what Graves called systemic, there's what Graves also called a momentous leap in meaning. And that is that at this stage, the systemic stage, there's an understanding of the fundamental importance of all of the previous stages. All of the previous stages become understood to be necessary in the overall growth and development of human beings. And so for this reason, this stage is often called by researchers the integral or integrated or holistic um, stage. And then super holistic is ones that sort of are in the process of unfolding and, and moving beyond um, even uh, integral stage as it, as it is present today. So those levels and those lines 
are two other components of the aqua map that open the mind and make room for various dimensions and various areas that a person might not have realized were there. And so that you can actually say, oh, wait a minute, the culture wars today are basically these traditional values of the mythic level versus modern values of the rational level versus postmodern values of the pluralistic level. And you can start to get an understanding of this interminable culture wars that are going on because each of the participants are coming from one of these major levels in the various lines that they're arguing. And any two can gang up on the other. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so just even that kind of understanding gives us an intellectual opening into what's going on, and it also increases our compassion for all of them, because we realize that all of them are arguing a basic truth as they understand it, that all of them are seeing something from their level of development that is partially true. And so we can understand why they're so, you know, sometimes intensely attached to their view. It's because it's a real view. There is some truth to it, but it's partial. And so we want to basically include all of the views and values of all of first tier uh, in order to get a better understanding of it. But that's a simple example of how using levels and lines is just a way that the aqua framework, the integral map, can continue to make room in our minds for things that we might not have understood previously and therefore does increase love and care and compassion and openness and decreases the amount of exclusion or marginalization that we might have present. And so that's one of the really important uh, aspects of this is that these categorizations and these levels are not meant to marginalize somebody or rank them or exclude them. Just the opposite shows ways to include them, increase their embrace, increase their inclusion, and increase the compassion we have for them. Well, speaking of this point and the theme of compassion, I'd like to uh, uh, extend some appreciation and compassion to you, Ken, uh, on, a, on a particular point, which is really relevant here. The nature of uh, integral awareness, uh, the fundamental insight uh, that each perspective is both true and partial, uh, had to be articulated at first as a critique. It had to distinguish itself from postmodern analysis. Right. And you did that. You drew a bright line between integral thinking and integral perspectives and postmodern. And you've been a fierce critic of the postmodern errors uh, because that needed to be done. Otherwise, right. your listener would blur together the integral truths with postmodern truths and right. continue to be subject to postmodern errors. Right. There needed to be a bright line drawn, and it was your moment in history, your moment in intellectual history, that the time it, that needed to be done when you were or kind of really arriving with your right. in, integral theory. So that, that fell to you to do it. And thank God you did. And those who've been influenced by you are, uh, you know, forever better off for your having done that. It was an important service to everyone. Great. And I 
don't think it can be overemphasized. Um, and you have done that now, and you're standing in a different moment in your career and emphasizing the other side of it, which is every perspective is not just partial. It's also true. Right. And you're expressing the integral appreciation for perspectives. Right. And it's only because the critique is already extant and right. uh, you've established a ground that the profound appreciation for every limited point of view right. is is liberated to do its work. In some ways, the effectiveness or you might say the influence of integral uh, theory I think will be advanced uh, especially by uh, growing appreciation for how the integral view is not uh, insincerely uh, profoundly appreciative of, of, of every perspective. It's really right. the only way that each perspective can be honored right. in, a, in an integrated form. And it is when the, like for instance, I know that at a, fairly distinct time in my own development as I was integrating my uh, integral awareness in, in a new way, a kind of arrogance began to fall off me in sheets. <laughs> I, I, I suddenly realized how much I had to learn from the Christian fundamentalist friends I had who had developed certain virtues, which are the special province of that developmental level, right. in a way that I had not. Yeah. And how much I had to learn from the really rigorous arguments of certain uh, modernists, you know, like these new atheists have a lot to say. Right. And if you read them carefully, as much as you may see a certain reductive blindness constantly rearing its ugly head, right. you'll also see that they are really taking seriously the truths that can be seen from the authentic bottom line of our right-hand quadrants. Right. And they're, they're really right about that. And if right. you're an intelligent reader, you become a student of them, too. Yes. As a student now of everyone I meet, <laughs> I mean, that, that's really what distinguishes an integralist, I think, yeah. finally, is, is that you're a sincere and, in a sense, humble student of everyone, even as you're working with a map that rises above the reductive, absolutistic kind of limit that many of them may be operating within. And, and this is this is the, a huge import of of, of 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 integral, and you've made it possible by having been such a fierce critic, particularly of the limits of postmodern perspective. Right. Only on that basis are we free to do this. Yeah, I, I, and, and you've taken a lot of shots for it, Ken. And uh, I'm not sure people fully get how necessary that work was and how much we all benefit from it. I just wanted to offer you that appreciation and in a sense of compassion because you've seemed like the enemy of what's good in all these limited points of view and, and quite to the contrary as you know what you just said evidences having established that critical foundation you are operating as integral theory does as an appreciator of the partial truths that each possesses and, and and liberating all of us to be students of everyone yeah i i appreciate that and i mean even when i was um especially sharp and critical of postmodernism there was always a section called um for example in a theory of everything a section called the many gifts of green and green being the 
color the rainbow of the pluralistic postmodern stage, and I would go into what the positive truths are, and then how those positive truths, because they have not been let go of, because they are taken in an absolute way, because it's not that they're true but partial, but they're taken to be just nothing but truths, how they've degenerated into really self-contradictory and harmful approaches, and then I'm critical of that. And a lot of people remember that and don't remember the whole section called the, the you know the many kiss of green. But it's certainly true that I have been uh, critical of the limitations of virtually every level of development, and certainly the postmodern level. It's it's run the world, certainly the industrial world. For the last 20 years and it started out in a very very positive way it started out with the civil rights movement and the environmental movement and feminism and, and then right about a decade into it it just turned into what I call the mean green meme uh, and has caused so much damage and the deconstructive fury that it has brought into the world and into humanities and academic disciplines is just vicious. There's just, there's just no other way to look at it. And all of the really positive things that the postmodernists are trying to do in terms of inclusivity and the nature of knowledge and what it means, all of those tended to get lost in this rush to deconstruct any and everything that moved. And it's European deconstructive thinkers were particularly critical of American postmodernists in, in overdoing this, but the Europeans didn't do much better and were themselves taken apart by Carl Otto Appel and Jürgen Abermas and Charles Taylor and, and others. So it, the, the point of all of this is that it, it's a two-pronged move. It's, it's that all of our approaches, including mine, are true but partial. And that what we try to do is situate ourselves at the leading edge of evolution, where there is the most truth and that has not yet been found to be out-contextualized. And so we try to write from that edge. That's where the most relative truth is. And then at some point, of course, somebody will come along and write from the next leading edge. And we'll do the same thing to this integral approach as this integral approach has done to you know previous ones, uh, and that's the nature of it. That, that's the nature of this the evolutionary game. But it's certainly um, the case that we always want to be careful about you know true and partial, and understand you know even Hegel said to supersede is it wants to negate and to preserve. So we want to both negate the limitations of these previous approaches and preserve their truths. And that is such a fundamental understanding of development. It's just so absolutely critical. It's one of those you know, half dozen ideas that just really opens the world up and um, that my work is, has played on both sides of that, uh, both criticizing and including. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Well, let's take a quick look at one more element of the aqua framework. This is part of the mental framework, but of course, it's not just referring to mental levels. There are pre-mental, mental, and, 
and trans mental elements in virtually all of the quadrants. But we are using, we're just going through the map now and looking at these elements as they unfold. And another one of them is states of consciousness. And states are differentiated from structures of consciousness in that states tend to be temporary. They tend in their natural condition not to show development or evolutionary unfolding. They tend to uh, simply show up and be rather random and chaotic in their organization. The difference is that states can be trained. And when they're trained, then they do tend to unfold in a specific order. And we see this in meditation. The traditions usually give around four or five major natural states of consciousness. And these are waking, dreaming, deep form of sleep, the pure witness, and non-dual suchness. And those five natural states of consciousness, which all human beings are said to possess, when they're trained, tend to unfold in that order. And those states tend to become stable and permanent acquisitions in consciousness. And so when somebody starts meditation, their awareness, their primordial awareness, their pure consciousness, their wakefulness is stuck in the waking state. And when they go to sleep or deep sleep, they tend to pass out, tend not to feel that they are conscious. And that's because wakefulness is stuck in the waking state. As meditation continues, wakefulness starts moving into subtle states of awareness. And you can, an individual can start even having subtle dreams, for example, lucid dreaming. If meditation continues, then wakefulness can enter into essentially formless states of awareness. And this might even include, after a decade or two, uh, entering into deep dreamless sleep with a tacit, very subtle awareness. And then there is a discovery of pure emptiness, and that pure emptiness, pure awareness that is unqualifiable, empty consciousness, then becomes one or non-dual with all of manifestation, all causal, subtle, and gross states. And that non-dual state is said to be the ultimate goal and condition of all reality and the ultimate goal of meditation itself. And so these states, though, however we look at them, are something that are important to include, and they're especially important to include on the spiritual path, because the spiritual path has many different meanings and many different aspects to it, including some aspects of spirituality are a developmental line itself. This particular aspect of spirituality was researched by James Fowler, for example. But for many people, spirituality is an intense experience, a peak experience, a blinding, transforming state of consciousness such as hit uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. And these uh, states of consciousness, then when practiced, 
as I said, tend to unfold in that general order. And this is what Evelyn Underhill found, for example, in her book Mysticism, in her survey of, of uh, all of the, the great mystical traditions, she found a general four-stage process of contemplation, and she called that a purification, illumination, dark night, and unification. And those are, of course, gross, subtle, causal, and non-dual. So these states become an important aspect of, of human nature, particularly with spirituality. And one of the final things that we've figured out, which is a great mystery to us for, for 20 years, is the relation of these states of consciousness to these structures of consciousness that we just went over. And the answer is that you can have virtually any state of consciousness at virtually any structure of consciousness. And that's because individuals wake, dream, and sleep, no matter what stage of development they're at. And so you can be at the mythic stage and be a Zen master, have completed a training through gross, sullen, causal, and non-dual states, but still be at a mythic stage. Or you can be at a pluralistic stage, or you can be at an integral stage. Um, but that understanding has been important because it also helps us understand how many mystics who you meet and they're just radiant and they're being and they're glowing and it's clear that they're in a causal or a non-dual state. But they open their mouths and they're uh, sort of angry and they're ethnocentric and they are arguing for war and um, very, very confusing unless you understand that you can have this phenomena of being at virtually any state at virtually any structure. Um, but that's just, that's just uh, uh, states is just another element that is included in the aqua framework and is something that we include in integral life practice, primarily in body practice and in spirit practice, which are our next uh, topics. You know, uh, I think that this distinction between states and structures has been really, in a sense, the focus of your most recent theoretical innovation. Yeah, and it's true. It's uh, important to just linger on it a, a moment longer. There are a couple of implications of it that I'd like to point to uh, just briefly. One of them is that this distinction not having been made when you and I began the path right. in the 70s, we heard an awful lot of so-called or supposedly enlightened teachers describing very, very high states as the end point of the practice life. And we really believed, we bought it, uh, right. at least I did at first, uh, that we were supposed to conjure up a particular state and somehow that state was supposed to become permanent and we would never be shaken from it no matter what the relative experience. Right. And that this was the point of the path. That still dominates a lot of traditional practitioners, that right. particular misconception. Right. And it is one of the liberating dimensions of an integral life practice framing for a practitioner of, a, of, of, of any path, but particularly a traditional path. Right. If he can grasp then that the nature of states is that they are labile, they will come and go by, by nature to some degree, you might tend to be able to be in higher states much more of the time and tend to eliminate some of the lowest 
most contracted states if you practice consistently over time. Right. But the nature of states is, is that they change and come and go. And yeah. that clarity, and then the clarity that uh, states are both more and less important when understood in this context. <laughs> yeah. in, in, in many ways, they're less important because we realize that we have to have an interpretive structure and that, that is really the, the ground of our understanding. And, 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 and so in that sense, it de-emphasizes states. Right. But in another respect, it re-emphasizes states. One of them is that a, a truly integral practitioner, uh, the best of the folks who will be doing ILP, they're going to have had a series of insights such that they have come to recognize that the way they are making meaning is always under construction. Right. In other words, they're living an action inquiry in which the way they are interpreting their experience is understood to be provisional and to be evolving. And their new experience will be feedback that will inform their next way of making meaning. So their meaning making is going to be continually evolving. Therefore, right. their structure is going to be less fixed, the structures through which they're making meaning. Their stage will be healthier and able to grow slowly, naturally, right. through, through life. Insofar as that is the way they are living, one of the most powerful ways that they can grow, both in their structure and in their state stage, is to engage the practices that bring them to the highest states of yes. awareness. Yes. And therefore, the uh, practice of entering into high states and understanding them more fully is, is a single practice, and states become more important rather than less. Right. And not only that, but we can begin to understand certain aspects of the natures of states and stages. Much of what we traditionally call transmission or initiation right. has to do with states. Yes. And there is a way that these transmissions of high states are um, a hugely important part uh, even of how many people grow through the stages. It is right. the teleological uh, turbocharger of these high states that right. have a, a creative influence on our growth to higher structures. So right. states get a re-emphasis even as they get a de-emphasis. Right. And uh, for practitioners, it's important to see these things clearly, and I don't think there's a context in which the distinction is made or these nuanced implications of that distinction other than the one that we've been developing together. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what is so incredibly important, as always, when we're faced with, with two items and we have arguments about, well, which one is real, one or the other, 99 out of 100 times, the answer is yes, both of them. Both of them are equally real and, and equally important. And what we find is that, in a sense, the contemplative traditions emphasize nothing but states. And that, again, is because these structures can't really be seen by introspecting. You can't really see them sitting on your meditation mat. They just don't come up. They're not available to be seen because they're part of the structure of the seer. They're what's doing the looking. They're not something that can be looked at. And so they tend to be implicit and 
pre-conscious and not found in the contemplative manuals. And even where the contemplative manuals outline their version of stages of meditation. And what you do find in the stages of meditation is stages of states unfolding. And so then there's this state experience, and then this state experience, and then this state experience, and so on. And so those tend to be very important because state experiences, as they climb from gross into subtle into causal, are things that you're disidentifying with. They're increasing your transcendental freedom to the point where you get into causal, or at least toria, the fourth, unmanifest, unqualifiable emptiness. You are radically free. You are in touch with infinity. You are identified with nothing finite. No finite causal object, no finite subtle object, no finite gross object. You are radically, radically free. If you are identified with anything, it's Godhead. It's the ground of all being. It's the suchness of all realms. And so that sequence tends to be completely overlooked and even denied by Western developmental psychologists who otherwise get the structure stages beautifully. But you find one or the other. You find the conventional psychologists who will not pay any attention to states because they know if they do, they're going to end up writing a book like William James, Varieties of Religious Experience. And James paid attention to states empirically and of course what he found was they were spiritual in the end they all ran towards spirit and that's what james did well no modern or postmodern psychologist wants to get stuck with that one so they stick with structures of unconscious and the only reason structures of unconscious don't turn into spirituality which they do at the higher stages is that there are so few people at those highest stages of structures, that they don't show up in populations, in research populations. There's less than one one thousandth of one percent present at uh, Indigo, which is the first transpersonal structure. And so you're just not going to get those showing up in Western research. So we have people that are that are doing either structures of consciousness or states of consciousness. And one of our real concerns, of course, is that particularly with spiritual teachers in this country who are largely at a pluralistic structure stage of growth, but as teachers of meditation, often Buddhist teachers of meditation, their uh, state center of gravity is at causal or non-dual. So they're non-dual in terms of their state orientation and green, pluralistic, postmodern, in terms of their structures. And they fully understand these states, and they know what a gross state is, a subtle state, a causal state, a non-dual state is. They have no idea what these structures are, archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral, and superintegral. And so they can't give any advice for their students who are maybe stuck in some problem at a, at a mythic, amber, ethnocentric, traditionalist value structure and are having trouble meditating because of, of problems with that structure, not problems with states. And even worse is that what we find, as we said you know, a couple of times, is that you experience your state of consciousness according to your structure 
of consciousness. And so the individuals who are at non-dual state will still interpret it through their pluralistic structure. And so all of a sudden, Buddhism and Vedanta and Taoism and Sufism are all getting interpreted as being identical to postmodern values. Flatland, no hierarchies, no ranking, no growth and development, everybody radically equal, and dozens of papers coming out saying that what Derrida is doing and what Shankara is doing or what Nagarjuna is doing are essentially the same, on and on and on identifying Shunyata with deconstruction, which is a disaster because, among other things, you can master deconstruction without having any meditative accomplishment, without any capacity for lucid dreaming or pellucid dreaming, remaining subtly awake during dream and deep sleep states. But if you understand shunyata, emptiness, you certainly have that capacity to have your awareness understand those deep states. So it's been just a real utter, utter disaster to include only one of these two essential components of the psyche. And, um, and it's, it's, inter- it's interesting how <clears throat> it is more among modernists that development is studied that's and right. more among postmodernists that states are emphasized. That's right. And, 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 and it's, it's interesting how uh, postmodernists have gotten interested in cognitive science and who've studied the right-hand quadrant brain states and, stru- you know, the brain right. structures. And we're not talking about... Uh, internal structures of, of meaning-making here, uh, are, are emphasizing states from yet another angle. I'm kind of curious as to what the transcendent expression of this new contemplative neuroscience uh, will be, because it tends to be reductive. It tends to yeah. reduce the internal experience to a correlate of a, 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 of a brain state. Right. And it's clearly much more than that. But uh, it, 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 I think it contains within itself the potentials for continued growth. And I'm wondering what the expressions will be of a contemplative neuroscience that you know, transcends these flatland limitations and it becomes truly integral. Well, that's what we're waiting to see because it's having exactly the opposite effect as its originators think. Because one of the things that they're trying to do with their studying of what happens in the brain when meditators meditate is to show that spiritual realities are real, that, that there's some reality going on here. But all that happens is when there's a state of unio mystica or samadhi or non-dual oneness in the meditator, and they get a particular brainwave pattern in the brain then all that tells a conventional scientist, you go to them and say, see, Buddha nature's real. He goes, what? <laughs> Buddha nature's not real. All that's real is a material brainwave pattern in the material brain. That's all you're showing me. That's not spirit. There's nothing spiritual about that. It's nothing but a brainwave pattern. And so they kind of sit there and, duh. So our, all of our attempts to show that meditative states have correlations in physiological brain states is to 
continue the reductionistic drive into scientific materialism. Oh, yeah, all those meditative states, yeah, nothing but brain shit. It's brain material stuff. Not, nothing, nothing transcendental about it at all. And that's what we get from confusing methodologies. That's what we get when we don't realize that there's methodological, integral methodological pluralism and that there are different truths in first, second, and third person uh, realms and that you know, there are different methods for determining the truths in those, all of those cases. But if you're trying to use one, which is the phenomenological truthfulness about claims of Buddha mind from the upper left quadrant, and confuse those with objective third-person scientific claims of truth in the material brain, then it's guaranteed to have a disastrous result because it's just completely confusing methods and taking the result of one method as if it proved something about the realm from other methods, and it, and it proves nothing at all. So that's one of the real problems we're getting right now. And, of course, people want to do it because they think that, well, it's more scientific. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> it's scientific materialistic is exactly what it is. And so we have yet to get out of that. And, of course, in an integral approach, it's very important to do that because an integral approach would not dare reduce Buddha nature to a brainwave pattern. The one, the, yeah, the one thing that I feel is very useful that comes out of this attempt to correlate contemplative experience with neuroscience is a refinement of the skillful means that practitioners can use, taking uh, the nature of brain dynamics into account more fully. There are occasionally just some practice tips that emerge. Oh, as I say, an integral approach that would never reduce, you know, Buddha mind to brain states uh, will find much of the research of use. And, I mean, I think we're going to find, you know, even correlates with neuropeptides and particular brainwave patterns, and that we'll be able to do a kind of induction of Kensho or Satori or Samadhi experiences by injecting a combination of neuropeptides and using brain light machines and so on. From what we learn out of the fact that there are correlates in all four quadrants. And so, of course, an integral approach is all in favor of doing that research in the, in the upper right quadrant in the, in the material brain. I'm just saying that the conventional world doesn't find this proving at all what the, you know, the researchers themselves think they're proving right. to the conventional world.